When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me today for this episode is Pastor Cal Risman. Pastor Cal has spent almost his entire career working in the field of addiction. He is currently semi-retired, but serving as part-time pastor of two Lutheran churches in Indiana. Cal is the author of the book, Knowledge to Power, Understanding and Overcoming Addiction. Pastor Cal has agreed to share his story of what it's like being a pastor to those in recovery. We're here with uh, Cal Risman, Pastor Cal Risman. This is a little different, Cal, than what we've normally been doing. I've been interviewing pastors to tell their stories about how they became addicted and recovered, but your story is just a little bit different. You were you were impacted by addiction, but in a different way, in an important way, because there's a lot of people out there that were impacted like you are that uh, we don't talk about as much, but there's just a whole lot of uh, stories out there of people who uh, were touched by addiction. And uh, you've done some work, a lot of work in this area, so I was hoping to hear some of your story. Cal's written a couple books, Adult Children of, of Addicts, and Knowledge to Power, Understanding of Addiction and, and How to Overcome It. And so I'm going to have you talk about those a little bit later, but mostly I want to start off by hearing your, your story. I mean, how did you, a little bit about growing up in, a, in a, an addicted environment and, and coming to realize that... Uh, that had impacted your life and I mean in the way you are in recovery from all of that right and so yep. uh, share some of that journey with us what's your what's your story man <laughs> I come at this thing more from the family side rather than the addicted side as I told you and my grandfather was an alcoholic my mother uh, an adult child of an alcoholic and it's kind of odd because I didn't really realize that those were things that were affecting me until somewhat a, a little bit later in my life. When I was a kid, I, I didn't realize that addiction was affecting me. Let me give you an example of, of this. My mother uh, was raised in a family where her, her father was an alcoholic. He was old and drunk. He was 67 when she was born. Grandma was 37. He didn't do much for the kids. And grandma was very uneducated, like a fourth grade education, very timid, very backward and shy. And uh, she wasn't going to do much either. My mother was, you know, a, a great lady, but she did have issues from this. And I didn't recognize them until later on looking back. And I go, oh, that's that's why that happened. So here's here's the example. Grandpa ignored the kids. 
he had two children, my mother and a brother. He ignored them pretty much 363 days a year. He was busy being drunk and old and, and sitting in his chair and whacking him with his cane, which they made too much ruckus. But there were two days of the year that he really poured it on. And that was Christmas and their birthday. Now, when I was a kid, I had a good family life because my dad was raised in, an, in a lovely, loving farm family and knew what to do with children. And fortunately, my mother uh, deferred to him uh, for parenting because she didn't know what she was doing, but he did. And she was smart enough to know what she didn't know. But anyway, there were always there were two days of the year that were miserable in our family. Most of the time was was good. But the two days of the year, take a guess which two days those were. Christmas and my mother's birthday. Because my dad was raised in the height of the depression. And, you know, he thought a big Christmas was if you got a, a sack with nuts and an orange and a pair of homemade socks. My mother was used to having all of the, what I call alcoholic guilt gifts dumped on her uh, at Christmas and birthday. So whatever my dad did, even though he thought he was kind of going overboard by his standards, it was never enough. It was never right. And those were always two miserable days of the year for us. Well, I never, I never got that until I was old, a little bit older. And I started looking at uh, addiction issues. And I started learning about addiction. I was always interested in it for some reason. I wasn't quite sure why, but I, I just naturally was. And then I started to find out, oh, that's why we had a miserable Christmas and my mom's birthday, because of those adult child of an alcoholic issues. And those are the kinds of things that I used to pick up. Uh, let me give you another example of that, if I could. My mother was... Uh, like a lot of adult children of addicts, she, you know, had the shame issues in the background. She always wondered if she was going to be good enough. And so she learned to do things for herself at a very young age. She started sewing at like age eight. She could sew anything so that she could look good at school and people wouldn't think she looked, here's her word, duchy, which meant, you know, out of fashion, hayseed kind of. So she would do that. And she, um, she took on the, the ACOA stuff. For people that don't know what that means, what is ACOA? Yeah, ACOA stands simply for adult child of an addict. Another term you might uh, see that's similar to that is ACOD, which stands for adult child of dysfunction, because that mm. can include things other than like uh, sexual abuse or uh, rageaholics and you know all kinds of dysfunction like that. So ACOA or ACOD. Now, uh, with my mother, she figured out very early on that if anything good was going to happen in her life, it was going to be up to her. Her dad was old and drunk. Her mother was backward and uneducated, timid. The, one of the good things that happened as a result of her uh, ACUA background was she would tear into anything. She could do anything and she could do it in a hurry. However, the downside of this is that she really kind of became more of a human doing than a human being, that her self-worth was pretty well encapsulated in what she could do or make or look like. And it was difficult for her to relax. So uh, <laughs> here's a good example of it. Towards the end of her life, she was dying of cancer and congestive heart failure. And my sister and I took a trip up to Minnesota and we 
wanted to spend a little time with her, her last days. And so she was sitting there. She could do very little except sit on the couch and watch TV or whatever. So she says, we're there. And she says, well, I think I could watch my program that I like to watch on TV if I worked on this sewing a little bit. And my sister said, you know what, mom, you could probably work, watch your TV program you like, even if you didn't work on any sewing. And to, to my mother, that was blasphemy. And she said, here's the quote. Well, you can't just sit there and do nothing. <laughs> we tried to tell her, yes, you could. But she never bought it till the day she died. And really, on her tombstone, instead of putting loving wife and mother, what would have been more characteristic is if we would have put, well, you can't just sit there and do nothing. <laughs> she had a hard time relaxing. But she could get she could get things done. Uh, the, the upside of this is that she could, she really could tear through some work. And when she got sick, uh, for example, I went up to Minnesota another time and I was trying to find out kind of how mom was. And so dad and I went out in the barn where all the good conversations take place. And uh, I said to him, how, how, how is mom doing anyway? And he was serious for once. And he said, oh, the old mother isn't doing too good. She can only do the work of about one woman now. And by that, I knew that she had been reduced to a third of her normal self, because generally she could do the work of three women. And if there was something that needed to be done, like at, at the Lutheran Church there in Preston, where they were members, if they needed something, uh, they couldn't get Sunday school teachers. So they then the pastor asked my mother, well, that was the end of that problem. She recruited teachers, she trained them, she got material, and they were ready to go. If you wanted it done, you ask Lois Risman, it's as good as done, and it's done right. So would you say that her, her addiction uh, w w w turned out to be workaholism? Is well, that I, I think it was, yeah. I think that was her addiction. And then, uh, you know, the other, the other thing that uh, ACOA people have problems with is they oftentimes really have trouble in relationships because they're they're always worried that they're not good enough. Here's an example. We had uh, shame goes along with this. And sometimes people who are uh, abused or sexually abused really get into that kind of thing, too. If they grow up in that kind of dysfunction and then they they carry that into their own relationships. So here's a here's an example uh, in the treatment center that I used to work at. We had a young woman that was uh, she was bright. She was uh, beautiful. Uh, she had a lot going for her, but she just got hooked up with one sick guy after another. And her parents were mystified as to, you know, how how did this keep happening? They said she did have one decent boyfriend for a short while, but she dumped him in a hurry and then uh, got together with a series of what they call dirt balls. Uh, just guys that were not worthy of her at all. Well, when I when I heard that, I right away knew there was some kind of big time shame issue because you don't settle for that kind of thing in relationships if if you feel like you're worth anything. And so I began to explore this with her and I eventually found out, she's very reluctant, of course, to talk about this. I eventually found out that she had been sexually abused for a long time by an uncle and that uncle was dead now and you know, she couldn't really confront him or whatever. But anyway, uh, her, her poor self-worth was, and this uncle was an alcoholic, uh, her poor self-worth was because of that 
And so all of her relationships were, you know, she settled for far less than she should have had. I mean, I, I could have lined up 50 guys up and down the hall, 49 of whom were relatively healthy, and one of whom was an outlaw, give her 10 minutes to walk up and down the line. Guess who she'd pick out? The outlaw. Guess who she'd go home with? The outlaw. I mean, that's that's just all she, she thought she deserved. And so uh, adult children of alcoholics have a lot of issues. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're not easy to deal with, especially the shame issues. For one thing, they don't really know what normal is supposed to be. I mean, they're just guessing at normal. Because, because normal, for me, is whatever I grew up with. And your version of normal is whatever you grew up with. Because little children, they don't know what what real normal is supposed to be. All they know is this is what I got in my house. And when they grow up with that kind of stuff that's abnormal, a lot of times they're just guessing at what normal is. And they're guessing wrong. Finding out what is real normal is, is very different for them. Well, I was just curious about how you began as, as you know, a young man growing up that you began to kind of sense or realize that maybe that you weren't normal. <laughs> I mean, that that there was something different or missing or I mean, when did it begin the, the you know, having grown up in that environment? When did that become start to become apparent to you? Well, it didn't really become apparent until I was probably uh, in college. I mean, before that, like I said, normal is whatever I grew up with. So I just thought, well, that's, that's the way mothers are, you know. I mean, <laughs> they must, all mothers must jump in and do three times the work that they should, and and get upset about wacky things like Christmas and birthday. And you know, I just thought that's the way it was, until and I got in college, and I started reading and looking at things. I was in, I was always interested in psychology, uh, and then when I got to seminary. Uh, I was. I saw that there was a course on addictions with uh, the right Reverend Dr. Dwayne Mayle, who was a recovering addict, and I took that course. I was drawn to it, and I took that course, and I started to say, "Holy cow!" You know, I'm now I'm looking back at my family, at my mother, at my grandfather, at other people, and I'm, and it's starting to make sense to me. It it just really it drew me, and I was very interested in that. When I got out of seminary, uh, I was a Seminex grad, so there was no calls for us guys. Do you want to say what Seminex? Yeah, Seminex means seminary in exile. It was the uh, kind of the split off from the Missouri Synod Lutheran uh, Concordia Seminary. Right. Uh, so, the, and it was a theological uh, conservative movement where if you weren't conservative enough, you got booted out, right? Right, right. I, I received what I call the left foot of fellowship. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, so that was a formative experience, too, I'm sure. That's, but a, anyway. that's a huge experience for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that, that's, another, that's another whole series <laughs> to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so I ended up farming with my dad for half a year after graduating from seminary because there was no calls. Then I got a call to a, it was called a worker priest. It was kind of a bivocational thing in Jamestown, North Dakota, which is not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. And so what I was doing is I had this split off uh, mission congregation that I was doing on a part-time basis. And then I was working full-time in building construction, building houses and barns and, and this kind of stuff. I wanted to get into the uh, addiction counselor training program because the North Dakota State Hospital 
the only state hospital in the state is it was in Jamestown where I was. And I tried to get in there and they said, oh, no, this is a very full time internship. You got this church. You, you couldn't do it. And they turned me down. But I was I was already very interested in that right away. And then uh, a couple of years went by and and I discovered that they had an opening for the chaplaincy, the hospital chaplaincy training program. I applied for that. My supervisor was a Lutheran pastor and he didn't care if I had this part-time path. He said, you, no, you can, you can be a, a chaplain resident, which is a year-long program. So after I was the chaplain resident, they said, where would you like to do your chaplaincy work here in the hospital? I said, how about chemical dependency? <laughs> they, said, they said, yeah, good, nobody else wants it. <laughs> and so then I, I was the chaplain for chemical dependency, the chaplain intern, chaplain resident. And once I got over there, they found out who I was, and I was doing, you know, spirituality lectures. I was listening to Fifth Steps. I was doing, and they said, "Well, you know, maybe you can do it since you're already doing it." And so then I did uh, had another year of chemical dependency internship, and I took extra courses at the local college, which had a separate track. It was a long-term training uh, hospital for chemical dependency, and then I took the extra courses, and then I became certified as an addiction counselor. I was certified as a hospital chaplain. I was certified as an addiction counselor. And then I uh, started working at an outpatient clinic full-time as an addiction counselor. I did that for four years. Then I, I gave up my part-time thing at the church and let them call somebody full-time at that point. And then I saw the, this advertisement on the back of a chaplaincy bulletin. It said, wanted for new treatment center in Muncie, Indiana. Spiritual care counselor must have extensive chaplaincy training and certification, must have extensive chemical dependency training and certification, must have three to four years parish experience and denominational endorsement. I looked at my wife and I said, somebody in Muncie, Indiana, wherever that is, wants me. And they flew me down for an interview and I did. And I was there from 1984 until I retired in, in 2018. I was the spiritual care counselor which was a, a combination between chaplain and addiction counselor. Then I was strictly addiction counselor when the program changed a little bit. Then I knew that I could see the handwriting. They were going to shut the treatment center down because insurance didn't want to pay for stuff anymore. And so I switched to be the nicotine dependency counselor for five years. And then they, they closed that because it didn't generate any revenue. And so I, I, I switched over and became hospital chaplain for the last years that I was at the hospital. Meanwhile, in the meantime, I became part-time pastor in a parish again, and then I became part-time pastor in another parish, which is what I do now, now that I'm retired from the hospital. So that's my circuitous route to uh, the addiction field. So throughout all those years, you've learned uh, some things about addiction, and you've written a couple books. That, was your first book uh, Adult Children of Alcoholics or Addicts? No, that first book was about uh, marriage and family. It was, I'm, I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. Okay. And that was a, a, a short book on uh, marriage and family. It's called A Farm Boy's Guide to Love and Sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the second book that I wrote is called Knowledge to Power, Understanding and Overcoming Addiction. And that, yeah. that book is... Uh, it's difficult to get the book in people's hands, but when they do get this book, it has really helped people. So I'm I'm very excited about that. That was my purpose in writing the book was you know uh, not to make a million dollars, but to 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 help 
to help people who are in recovery, whether that's addicted persons, codependents, adult children of addicts, uh, you know, whoever it is, that that was my that's been my passion uh, for my entire career. That's what I want to do. And I'm, I'm very happy to say that when people get this book, it's clear enough for them. It's easily understandable and and it's it's helping. So I'm I'm pleased with that. So what are you hearing back from readers and how, how is it helping them? What do you hear? Uh, what kind of feedback do you get? Well, I, I go through the first chapter is the disease. That's the title. And those of us who've been around addiction a long time, we kind of take that for granted. But it's, it's a chapter that says, you know, uh, most people don't think addiction is a disease. They think it's a moral failure or a lack of backbone or character or spine or moral something or other. And so I talk about the disease. I compare it to other diseases that I saw in the hospital that, you know, uh, cancer, heart disease, you know, diabetes, anything like that. And then and then talk about what is the real issue with the disease. And that is not lack of brains or lack of knowledge. It's lack of power. And that's, you know, the title of the book, Knowledge to Power. It's a loss of control or lack of power. And if people don't understand that, they'll never be well. It's not a question of if people are too stupid to get sober or get clean. It's a question of not having enough power. You're, you're suggesting that with knowledge, you have some power over the disease. I mean, it sort of begins with knowledge, right? Right. Knowledge and leading, that, leading to, the, to, to the surrender so you can have the power. So knowledge is good. You yeah. got to have some of that, but it's not the whole thing. And then I go on to talk about the spiritual disease, you know, how, how this is uh, – this is a disease that is, uh, above all else, a spiritual type. You know, like cancer is a an unchecked cell growth type of disease, and and diabetes is a a uh, you know sugar type disease. Well, this is a spiritual type of disease that that it requires a spiritual type of cure. And so we talk about uh, the difference between what is um, religion and what is spirituality. That you know, a recovery program has to be spiritual, although it doesn't have to be religious. Later on, I, I talk about uh, the role of religion in recovery, that religion can be can be a helpful thing uh, to enhance your spiritual growth. But there's also a segment in that chapter that says religion could also be a very damaging thing yeah. to people who are trying to be in recovery because it's filled with judgment and 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 shame and guilt and you know you, you, you're, you're not good enough for God and all that kind of stuff. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. 
After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. Well, you know, that's one of the things that I take up in my ministry, and I, I want to ask you about it because you, we're both pastors. We both understand this disease. We understand that it's a spiritual issue. Why is it the church, which is an institution based on the spirit, um, so poor at this? I mean, how is it that um, we can't address this better than we do? Do you have any, have you thought about that? I think part of it is that people believe that when they're in church, they should be, quote, good people, unquote. And the problem with addiction is, as you know, the symptoms of this disease are really nasty. You know, selfishness and and excuse-making and lying and procrastinating and self-pity and, uh, you know, uh, all, all of these kinds of character defects that we all look at in the fourth and fifth steps of AA. And these, these are symptoms that are so nasty that people really don't want to be associated with them. And so in the church, you know, sometimes we're looking for, quote, good people, unquote, and therefore people get the message if I don't, if I'm not a good person, I probably don't belong there. So we give the message in the Christian church a lot of times that the, the church is not a hospital for sinners who need to be helped to heal and be made well, that, that the church is a museum for the saints to come get dusted off once a week. And I, I think that that really holds people back. Here, give you an example of this. Uh, I had a guy in my first parish. He was a big dairy farmer, milked 120 Holsteins every day, twice a day. And he was a, a late stage alcoholic. He went to the state hospital and he was able to get clean and sober. He really found it in the fellowship of AA. He got very involved, got a good sponsor, and he was doing very well. Then one day he came to me, he says, uh, he says, Cal, uh, you know stuff about uh, alcoholism and all that. And I said, yeah. He said, well, <clears throat> I'm thinking about coming back to church to enhance my spirituality. He said, I'm thinking about coming to your church because you know stuff about this. What do you think about that? You think the roof would cave in? And I said, no, it's got really big beams. I think it'd be fine. Uh, but but here, here was, <laughs> you know, here was his take on it. Do you think the roof would cave in if I showed up? I think that's the message that people have uh, about the church, that you go there when you've reached a, cer a certain level of goodness, then you qualify. Instead of saying, I am destitute and I am a broken, sinful person, that's where I should go hang out in the hospital for sinners. 
it baffles me that the church uh, can't be a place for people who, not only people who are addicted, who you know are hungry and needing help, can't find it in the church for one. They have to go elsewhere. And then when they get in recovery, um, they come to church and still walk away disappointed because they don't feel like it's a place for them. And uh, and I yeah. that, that feels to me like something Jesus would find disappointing <laughs> in the church. I'm pretty sure Jesus finds this disappointing. Here, here's another angle on this. I think that in the Christian church, we do talk about guilt quite a bit. And we have uh, something for that. The cure for guilt is confession and absolution. You know what we don't have much for in the Christian church? Anything for shame. Because shame, in order to be healed, requires exposure. Bring it to the light. Bring it out. What are the things that you have felt dirty and worthless and ashamed of? And we don't have any structures in the Christian church to deal with shame. Which is interesting because the first experience of uh, the fall in the garden is shame. <laughs> the uh, Adam wanting exactly. to cover himself up and, and feeling ashamed. Yeah, I've, yeah. Got, I've got that. I, I mentioned that story in my book, too, is that, mm. you know, you've got the first man and the first woman. Everything is perfect. Everything is fine. But that's not good enough for them. They don't, you know, they don't want to have a God. They want to be one. So mm. the temptation that the uh, serpent gives them, oh, you will be like God. Well, you know, that's exactly what they want. So they, they take the temptation. And then afterwards, after they, you know, eat of the fruit, then, uh, uh, then their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. Mm. So God comes down and he says, Adam, where are you? <laughs> like as if he didn't know being God. Right and, and Adam says, oh, uh, we hid ourselves because we were naked. And then God says to him, who told you that you were naked? In other words, where did you get the notion that you literally of your naked self, the may I, the way I made you, are not okay? Did you eat the fruit? And then Adam, who was most likely an alcoholic because he goes for blame. I mean, well, it was the woman. It, it, was, it, it was the woman. And then he blames God, too, that you gave me. So you're you're kind of at fault too, God, for 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 giving me this defective woman who tempted me to, you know. So which is a great story because isn't that what uh, addicts do when they're accused? Uh, they blame God, they blame the the, yeah. the other person, they blame the yeah. it's everybody's fault but their own. You've got a foot in both worlds, and and you've written yeah. a couple books. How and so you have a message for the church on this. Uh, how receptive has the church been to what you have to say? Well, I don't think the word's gotten out to enough people in the church yet. The people that this word has gotten out to actually have been pretty receptive about it. And they have said, yeah, you know, I probably couldn't say the things in a Bible class that I could in a bar. You know, I could tell people stuff in a bar, stuff that I've done and feel guilty about and miserable about, or stuff that's happened to me and I feel shamed, easier than I could at church. And so they're going, you know, that that really, that kind of is true, that the church should be a place where those kind of conversations take place regularly, not just once in a great while or the the rare church uh, encounter. That that should that should be there all the time. Well, you know, you and I, when we first met, we talked on the phone, and um, I had said something about how the church doesn't seem to want to hear this. Um, and there's a lot of pushback on it um, when you try to raise awareness around this issue. And you laughed and said, well, to get used to that, because you've been doing this for a lot of years and, and you've experienced a lot of that. So that's kind of what, is, what I was getting at, is how the church kind of doesn't want to deal with this. 
No, I, I, I don't think that they do. Uh, I think that, I think that the church has uh, kind of diluted itself into thinking that just because people are in church, that automatically means that they're no longer sinners. They don't, they don't need any uh, change. They don't need any recovery. They, you know, they're, they're there because, as I said before, they're there because they're good. They're good people. That's where the good people show up. Your years as of a pastor, how much, how much of this do you see in, in the church lives of churchgoers who have the, uh, these particular issues, but, uh, but they're well hidden? The addicts are just not in church. Who, who we tend to see, pastors, we see the codependents. We see, so uh, I'm thinking of a couple instances here uh, where the husband is an alcoholic, husband is a drug addict, couple of these cases, and the, the wives are in church. And these wives are, you know, wonderful people to have in church because they have that codependent stuff of, I need to do good works to feel good because, you know, my, I don't have anything going on at home in my relationship with my husband, but I, I really have a lot of respect for the things that I do around church. And here's something that I think is really sick. Pastors love these sick codependents because they do everything in the church. They're there anytime the doors open, you can ask them anything and they will say yes because their self-worth is so low that they can't say no. And, and the pastors love these codependents, women and men, but it's more women than men uh, by numbers. They, they love to have them around because they do everything for them. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I, I, when I first started out in my ministry, I thought, well, I will be a pastor who can help addicts. But it wasn't long before I found out addicts don't come to pastors. They don't. <laughs> but the people who love them do. And they would come to yes. me and say, I have a nephew, I have a son, I have a friend, and uh, what do right. I do? And then I would always say, well, you need to go to Al-Anon. And they would go, oh, but it's not my problem. It's uh, you don't you don't see the addicts in church. Very, well, I shouldn't say that. Once in a while, once in a while, you see an addicted person in church and they they just they don't know they're an addict because they're still going to work every day and they haven't been in jail yet yet. And their their marriage is still hanging together by a thread. And so, you know, since denial is the number one symptom of addiction, you you will find the occasional addict who makes it into church who thinks he's he or she is okay it's the rest of the world that's off yeah well the other the other problem with that is you you say you don't see the addicts in church and and when we say that i think we both make and most people make the assumption that we're talking about the people that have full-blown drug substance abuse issues but who we do see in the church are people who are addicted to uh, pornography and that's you know of course nobody's gonna see that that's well hidden uh people addicted to electronics and, and gaming and and, and uh, even even exercise becomes an addiction where you shut everyone else out of your life but do these things. So there's a lot of addictive, destructive. Um, I mean, this disease takes on a lot oh, of forms, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it's not just, you know, we've we've you and I have talked mostly about drug and alcohol stuff. But, uh, you, you know, in my book and, and I'm talking about all addictions, like just take a look around your congregation some Sunday and see who isn't abusing food. Yeah, well, we have an addiction problem there, yeah. don't we? Yeah. yeah, and of course, the fastest, the fastest growing addiction. Now, I have a, a good friend, Bruce Perkins, who is an intervention specialist, and he is, uh, he's the greatest interventionist in the Midwest for my money. And he said that the fastest growing, not the biggest, 
But the fastest growing thing for interventions with young people is what you said, computer slash game slash iPhone addiction. Mm-hmm. He said that there, there are young people, well, there's older people too, but more, more young people who are, they're just sitting in front of their devices for 20 hours a day. They never leave the house mm-hmm. or they carry their device with them. If they leave the house, they're walking down the sidewalk and they're still looking at their iPhone and they're, you know, doing all of that. And so the problem with that is they become incredibly socially isolated and alone and, right. and, and, and privately desperate. Yep. I had a, uh, I, I wrote about this as an example in my book. I went to a Chinese restaurant in Muncie uh, a few years back. There was a young family came in, father, son, uh, teenage daughter, preteen son, father, father, wife, and two kids. Anyway, I, they sat down. They all four had their iPhones out as they sat down at the table. The waitress came. They could, couldn't even look up from their iPhone. They just gave her their order and kept looking. And then when the when the uh, food came, they put the phone down with one hand. They were they were playing with the phone, swiping with one hand and eating with the other. And I just I thought I'm just going to sit here and watch this thing through. And not one time during the entire meal did any of them speak to one another. They got up. The three walked out. Dad took over and paid with his phone, <laughs> and uh, and and he walked out. And I, I just, even though I was done eating, I said, I'm going to sit and watch and see how long this goes on. I'll tell you how long it went on the entire time. Now, to my way of thinking, that's a problem. I mean, you know, I, yeah, probably the guy still works. Yeah, the kids are probably still doing good in school. But that's a problem. Like you said, that kind of social isolating and and uh, just, you know looking at a screen rather than a face that's that's not right Mm -hmm. well and that's part of the nature of the disease is is uh where it takes us is the more more and more isolated uh so 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 matter what the disease even if it's exercise it's a healthy thing uh pretty soon that's all you do and think about and you don't have friends in your life you don't have relationships and and you suffer and your body suffers and anyway so how do you see uh because i know for me as a recovering addict myself that um, I, I, for me, it's a lifelong challenge. I still see, you know, I still have to deal with addiction in, in different ways. Rather, you know, I don't struggle with whether I use drug or not, but I do uh, get addicted to things. You have a history with that, and so that, that kind of goes with you. How do you still see that at work in your life? I mean, do you still struggle with some of the dynamics of, of being an adult child? I, I tell you how it shows up for me, perfectionism. Uh, Perfectionism is the cover-up of shame. And when we, when we have shame issues, we tend to try to act our way out of them by doing things perfectly. So maybe if, you know, if I don't feel uh, that I maybe am okay all the way, if I do good, then pe- people won't notice that I'm really not okay. And so for me, you, you might guess that that workaholism has been an issue for me at times. Uh, you, you could kind of tell that when I was working at the hospital and had two parishes I was a pastor of at the same time. You got to kind of say to yourself at that point, hey, Cal, you can tell me about workaholism. <laughs> you know, so you had a good model for it. Yeah, I did. Uh, so I would say, uh, and, and, and the other thing is, too, uh, I had another good model in that my other grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, was a, a um, 
a guy who could, he was a farmer and he grew up with handwork and, and he could, he could take the long handled scythe and run three of us into the ground, trying to keep mm -hmm. up with him. A shovel, a corn rake, a, a pitchfork, a scythe, anything that was hard, mind numbing, repetitive work. He could kill all of us trying to keep up with him. And he wasn't showing off. It's just, that's how he grew up. And that's who he was. He was the oldest uh, of 12 children. He was the one who took over the farm because his father was in town drinking. So, you know, he had a little ACOA stuff from his dad too. Well, when you got people and when you're on the farm working, that's, you don't sit in the house and say, well, I kind of don't feel like going out and feeding the cattle today. <laughs> if, if you don't, they're, they're dead, you know? So working on a farm that kind of came in a good sense, it came from the other side of my family too, just because they're farm people and because grandpa knew he could work all of us into the ground. And then you have my mother's workaholism from her uh, uh, father being an alcoholic and you add that together. So I would say workaholism, and uh, you know, I think I'm a lot better now than I used to be. But there are still times if I'm sitting in the house, I'm saying to myself, "What am I doing here? I, you know, I should be outside cutting down another tree, or you know, cleaning something up, or go back to the church and work on another newsletter, or you know, just just sitting, just sitting there." is very difficult, like my mother, where you can't just sit there and do nothing. I still got that message. That resonates in my brain a lot. So I, I think those are issues for me, uh, the perfectionism and the workaholism. You know, I've been doing stuff, uh, trying to raise awareness around this issue for many years, but I have seen in the last couple of years a new awareness, a new willingness for the church to listen. What, you know, what, what, what kinds of things could a church do to... Uh, participate in in dealing with this a couple of things that i think of right away one is i think that all churches should at least consider being open to having 12-step meetings in their buildings that when when that happens there is something magical that usually goes along with it and that is that there are some of those folks that uh, once they get in the door, they think, maybe I'll try the upstairs of the church some Sunday to see how that goes. And when they do, there is a, a, a an acceptance that starts to permeate the congregation. So that's one very simple thing. Open your doors to 12-step programs. Uh, I think that's important. The other thing is, I think that churches should maybe consider having a chemical health committee. And that would be you know, people who have a vested interest in recovery. So you've got some recovering addicts, some recovering codependents, recovering adult children of addicts and so forth. People who are on it, who, who, would, who would be part of that committee, that the pastor could call these people because they have connection to meetings and can help them get sponsors and so forth, that the pastor can call these people at two o'clock in the morning and say, hey, I got a pigeon for you. I got somebody that's drunk. They're in jail. Their wife is calling me. They 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 want you know they want help. They want to know what to do, and you can uh, put the, turn these people loose on them. It just a chemical health committee I think would be a great thing. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I would say for pastors is if I was a pastor of a a, a new pastor in, in a different area, a new church for me, 
the first one of the first things I would do is I would find out who's the best intervention specialist and have their number on speed mm. dial <laughs> because people oftentimes want to know what to do and you go well you know I, I'll pray for them <laughs> hope they yeah. get, no no yeah. uh, here's here I'll call the guy I got the guy like I've got a guy my friend Bruce Perkins who's the intervention specialist he's the best 95 percent of the people he intervenes on go to treatment. 90%. And if you wait another month till they find out people are serious, it's night goes up to 95%. Now that's pretty well a slam dunk. And so you, I mean, yes, this costs them some money to have an intervention specialist come in and do this, but if they consider how much money they're wasting on booze, on drugs, on uh, doctor bills, on, you know, jail, you know, bails, you know, stuff like that, it's not much. And if their life is at stake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's going to cost you a, a, a couple thousand or fifteen hundred or what? Okay, what's their life worth to you? You have to determine that. So those are things that, yeah. that I would do. The other thing I would do, and and the thing that I I do do, is I include examples of addiction in my sermons. Mm-hmm. I include examples of addiction in my newsletters. I, I make it a regular part of my conversation when I'm talking about diseases. I always include addiction to say, you know, if you're feeling bad because, you know, your your grandma has cancer and, uh, uh, you know, your uh, aunt has diabetes and your cousin has uh, alcoholism. And I mean, I just I always include that kind of as a matter of course. So that people get used to the idea that this disease is like this other disease is like this other disease is like any disease. It has signs. It has symptoms. It's chronic, it's progressive, it leads to death, and you need a higher power, you know, include all yeah, of those yeah. things. You know, I uh, the first time I spoke with you, I think we talked for a very long time, and I thought, you know, I, I could talk to this guy all day. You are you are a joy to talk to. You've been a pastor for how long now? How many years? When did I graduate from seminary? 77. <laughs> yeah, it was a way back. Anyway, a lot of years. So you've been around a lot of pastors. Do, do, do pastors know uh, enough about this? Oh, no, yes. no, no. Now, it, it, there are courses available now uh, in some seminaries, but in general, uh, I would say that Lutheran pastors know more than some other pastors from other denominations, but Lutheran and Lutheran pastors actually have a pretty good record of being open to uh, recovery stuff. Uh, so we're not we're not as woeful as some. But we're still not that good. Uh, I, I think, if for, for my money, if I was running a seminary now, instead of taking one more course on the theology of Saint Paul, I would, I would, I would have an extra course on dealing with addictions. <clears throat> Here's my little pet peeve on this. I think that Lutheran pastors are some of the best educated pastors in the world. However, I think that we are better educated as theologians than we are as pastors. What you do with alcoholics, what you do with teenagers who are gone wild, what you do, you know, some of that stuff we don't get enough of in our Mm -hmm. seminary training and beyond. Uh, I think we have plenty of training about, uh, you know, theological issues. We're fine there. We don't need more of that. We, We need more of this kind of practical stuff. That's my that's my yeah. thought. Well, I certainly would agree with that. I remember my first couple months at seminary when it dawned on me that it was almost purely academic. 
that I thought, boy, I have come to the wrong place. I just wanted to learn about God and grow spiritually. And I thought, that's not what seminary doesn't want to do that. They don't do that. So, um, but I also had a friend who said, well, you know, you're in a 12-step group. You're getting that there. What you need is the academic. So for me, it was a good fit. But uh, there are a lot of pastors who don't have the benefit of having gone through a 12-step program and and grown spiritually in the ways that we get the, the gift of recovery. Well, Cal, thank you so much. What a great conversation and a helpful conversation. Your book is uh, Knowledge to Power. I suggest uh, folks go out and read that as an introduction to the topic. Make a great book study for, for congregation. And I bet with Zoom now, you'd be willing to do a, 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 a little uh, sit down on Zoom with a, with a group of people from a church who are reading your book and working their way through it. Maybe, Absolutely. Maybe they would visit. They yeah. have a chance to visit with you around the book and and what, right. a great, what a great opportunity that would be. I would, I would be very glad to do that. I have Zoomed with one congregation uh, where I did a presentation up in Wisconsin, and then I Zoomed with them uh, and had a discussion later. And that, that went really well. It was really enjoyable for me and I think for them too. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Well, God bless you, Cal, and we will see you down the road. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our pastor upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.